Hello everyone, did you miss us? So, many of you already noticed that Conlangery has been around for a while. Uh, that is changing slowly. The, now, um, this episode that you're about to listen to was actually recorded before we went on hiatus, but I was just so crazy that sort of swamped with stuff that I never ended up editing it. So, it's edited now, and ready for your listening pleasure, and I want to announce that we are going to be doing new episodes starting in January. I think we're going to be monthly for a little bit, but uh, hopefully that will be uh, alright with people. At least monthly for big shows. We may be able to stick in shorts a little bit in between if we get... Uh, if if me and maybe some other people get time. But, in any case, we are not podfading yet, and I don't want us to podfade, so uh, enjoy the show! Welcome to Conlanger, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. And we have a, a probably a fairly quick topic, but it's an interesting thing. Instead of featuring one Conlang today, we sort of grab a sort of a grab bag of Conlangs that are sort of weird ideas, and they're particularly oxlangs that are weird ideas. So this this episode we're going to title "Weird Ideas for Oxlangs." By weird, we should just you know before to to keep away the hate mail. We mean mm-hmm. this is not how you'd normally expect an oxlang to be done. Right, and I'm not casting aspersions against the people who are inventing these, although one or two maybe deserve aspersions. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to talk about that. There's there are things that you wouldn't really expect, and I think on William's uh, list you have one that really I never even thought of as an oxlang. What did you think it was? Well, anyway, some people know about this the um, uh, from the uh, John Wilkins an essay towards a real character in a philosophical language, basically. One of the early philosophical languages. Yes. And the most famous by far. Yeah. So he did propose this as a universal language. He did. For for scholars and scientists and such. So it makes sense. But I think what makes this weird and what makes it a weird idea for an Oxlang is just the sheer sort of impracticality of his massive classification system, probably. And I think that's going to be the theme for a number of these mm-hmm. is impracticality mm-hmm. and a failure to understand how human language works <laughs> yeah. um, in this. And we can't blame Mr. Wilkins in that sense. Linguistics was a new science of that part. And some of the things we understand yeah. now were maybe less clear or were, had not his, yet been thought about. His, 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 his essay was published in 1668. So it's not really, it wasn't, Linguistics was not really a science at that time. So. Right, right. Um, 
And the thing that makes it difficult is laid out very neatly in Erica Okren's book about um, constructed languages, which is that, as George said, it has this enormous taxonomy. It is like a gigantic um, thesaurus with every – the totality of things in the world laid out in tables. And the problem is that words that are for related topics, the words themselves are related. So – even though in normal conversation, when you need to talk about this kind of garden snake versus that kind of garden snake, you want the words to be fairly distinct. Mm-hmm. In the real character, they're going to be almost identical. Now, was was real character written only? Uh, no, there was a pronunciation system available for its writing system. So he had a funky invented writing system, but he also had a transcription system. Okay. Um, and yes, yeah, so everything could be pronounced as well. Okay. Um, I don't think we need to go on too much further on any one of these, but, uh, yeah, that is, and the thing about any of the classification systems, uh, when you're doing, uh, any, any kind of conlang is like, particularly for an oxlang, the thing that people have to realize is there's no universal way of classifying the universe. Well, that's true too. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's like. He's, by making his classification system, he was imposing his own order on reality uh, just as much as any natural language does. So, Sure, he was just following Aristotle, like all good people of the time. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, um, another one you have here is this Characteristica Universalis. Uh, I'm not familiar with this one. This was Leibniz's fantasy for having... It's very much in the same line as real character. He wanted a philosophical language that was perfectly clear and unambiguous and could be used specifically for scientists and philosophers to reason together and talk together without argument because you'd have a universal language and everything would refer clearly to what it was. Um, The thing that was interesting about this one is it is that it is based on rather funky ideas about how the Chinese language worked. Oh, oh, so it is a, like Bliss Symbolics, which we're going to talk about in a bit. It is a purely visual language. He never invented it. He did some writings on it. We have some diagrams. We have some thinking about how things were going to be, um, but it was never completed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One thing, the, the reason it came to my attention is that um, the fairly famous Kurt Gödel, like Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem, um, thought there was a conspiracy. Um, to cause Leibniz's characteristic universalis to be concealed from the world. Because <laughs> it, it was <laughs> just so good that it should have been accepted. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's, that's always, um, that, that's always an, an issue. Uh, another, and, um, there's just lots of these. So we have Aoi. How do you even pronounce this? Aoi. Aoi. Hmm. AKA the language of space. It was invented by a Austrian psychologist. Oh, excuse me. Psychoanalyst. Um, in the fifties. Um, and it is an oligosynthetic language. That is, there is a small number of core meanings, which, Combined together to form the to- to all of the words of the all of the words of the language. Hmm. So basically, you have an alphabet, and assigned to each sound is some significant meaning. 
So the, the sound ah means space. Um, the sound u means spirit or mind. Um, the sound e means light. The sound e means sound itself, so that aui means, you know. Yeah. I, I is light. E is, is sound. sound. Yes. So aui. And uh, another really odd thing about this, obviously the, 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 the sort of bizarre morphology is of these sounds, there are only four consonants. No, 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 no. The, the, the web page you're looking at does not have the full total. Oh, really? Yes. Are there, are, are there more consonants than that? Cause it, oh, yes, it's, yes, 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 yes. It's yes, very yes. vowel-y. It is very vowel-y. vowel <laughs> That's a great wow. word. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, he actually has a web page devoted to this. Yes, the language of space, universal communication, where he gives all of them. I will include a link to that. So we have. Oh, okay. So there's more constants than that. Yeah. Okay. Yes. 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 Um, right. So the sound for z means part. The sound for j means equality. The sound for n as in Nancy means quantity and so on and so forth. Um, so that you get words like yeah, which is light time, which means day, which means this day equals today, right? So it's all of it's kind of like Tokipona, but even more condensed. Yeah. Well, uh, and another case of um, very uh, a another case of this sort of classification system being applied and yes. and sort of making these words and i will say like a lot of it is based on very similar sounds so it it if you were trying to use this practically it might not pass the redundancy test right because and we've not specifically named this but the redundancy test is pretty freaking important um if all your words sound alike, it's going to be very hard to understand what's being said to you in all but the most perfectly silent environment. Mm-hmm. Right. We, communic- we communicate in a very noisy channel, which is the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why all sorts of things that languages do that seem redundant persist for millennia is because they're useful sort of extra checks on noise interfering with your communication. Yeah, that's it. It was. It's not that. Um, there's any specific test or anything. That was just a term I was using. It's just that, yeah, natural languages maintain a certain optimal level of redundancy in order to deal with noisy environments, as William said. Yeah. And, and even uh, outside of just any uh, non-ideal conditions like reading a book where a page is ripped or something like that. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, there's, you had a note here. I want to understand what this means. The spacemen are wildly sexist. Right. So the guy was a psychotherapist and he taught, I, I was lucky enough to find a copy of his book years and years ago in the university of Texas at Austin library, way at the end of the languages section is where they dump all of the invented languages. Um, and I found this in the language of space and I amused myself reading it. And one of the things he claimed is that by using the language, you could fix psychological problems. <laughs> provided such deep insight into the world that thinking about your emotions in this very sort of um, compositional analytic way could give you insights. The problem mm. is 
you know, claiming, you know, calling this the language of space is entertaining, except that it's full of all sorts of standard sort of European cultural stereotypes. So the word oo, which means man or person, um, the word for woman is evus, which means passive person thing. <laughs> oh, I see. Right. And yeah. mother, which is hilarious, is utlu, which is not toward round person, which has something to do with, yeah, it's very strange. Wow. Um, so that's a little that's a little awkward. <laughs> it is a little awkward. And I have, as I said, I've got a link to a hilarious article complaining about the things um, from a website called The Anomalist. And this is from the Archive of High Strangeness. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that is an ent- entertaining rant here. Um, and going down, um, we're, we're working through, uh, the ones that William brought in because he brought in a bunch of them. And, uh, uh, you also have, and this one, it's an interesting idea to me. Uh, the practicality really only comes, the, the impracticality only really comes when you think about it a little bit, but, uh, yes, which is, Basically, a revival of Proto-Indo-European. Yes. Now, the, the one of my favorite uh, language blogs is called Language Hat, and he describes the language as touchingly absurd project. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, it makes some sense because, you know, a lot of times, so the I would deal would be since, you know, there's a huge number of languages that descended from Proto-Indo-European. Well, theoretically, we should have lots of typological similarities with it. So we could revive it as, you know, an Oxlang for the Indo-European zone. Right. The problem <laughs> with this, um, <laughs> ignoring entirely a whole bunch of semantic issues, um, Right, words drift in meaning over time, and 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 we, we cannot recover necessarily fully the range of meanings any given ancient word had. Although maybe we can get in that direction. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the phonology reconstructed for Proto-Indo-European makes it look like a languages of the North Caucasus. It is an extremely bizarre phonology. Big consonant clusters, weird vowel things going on, um, strange consonants by voiced, all accounts. Voiced aspirated. Uh, Things, maybe some, some, uh, the so-called laryngeals that we don't know what they are that were probably sounds you'd expect in, I don't know, Arabic. Right. We Um, don't, we don't even, we don't even know what some of them are, right? We have clues in Greek mostly, um, and sometimes Armenian about what was going on. But so there's a lot about Proto-Indo-European to make it very difficult for learners to learn. To say nothing, and we have not even talked about the extremely complex systems of conjugation and declension that it has. Um, so for me, using this as an Oxlang is weird because it's so fiendishly difficult. Yeah, the, I, it's it sort of comes off as something It's a cool idea to throw out there, but then once you realize what Proto Indo European is like it just does not it just does not work in yeah. any kind of practice. Now, from the Conlanger's perspective, I love this project because they have a, a great deal of information about Proto Indo European. They make available for you for free. So, if you want to do um, an Alt Lang where you take Proto Indo European and run it through a bunch of different sound changes, 
Yeah. You have a lot, you have all that information laid out for you neatly and nicely, and it's there and go nuts. All in a, a nice little website. Just yeah, make sure that website. you're it's not you know, a little website. It's a huge website. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And just, you know, and I, I know the they'll have clearly marked what's, you know, reconstructed routes and what they're proposing people actually use and stuff because the I think they made some changes in order to actually make things usable since there's just holes sure, in what we sure. know. And that's fine, but it's still an awful nice starting point. Yeah, yeah. For for an alt lane kind of project. Yeah, they they call it modern Indo-European. Yes. And uh you know, they they actually take out the laryngeals since nobody really knows what they are and things like right. that. Right. Um that and uh the last one you had on your list is uh Babum. Except it's pronounced Ba'abamu. Ba'abamu. Hmm. Oh, is this... That's what I said. It, it uses the Latin alphabet as an abjad. Hmm. <sighs> or a syllabary, rather. A syllabary, sorry. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> so each letter is actually a syllable. Uh, mm. Ba'abamu, okay. Um, um, and it was invented by a Japanese fellow in... He uh, lived from the 1800s to the 1900s. The book was published in 1962. The, the his name is uh, Rikichi Okamoto. Yes, um, and it also is a taxonomic language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a little bit hard to find information about it. Someone's got some excerpts from the book, um, which was oh look, it was on a GeoCity site, so it's long gone. Um, hmm. But I just mention it as an interesting choice. Another taxonomic language. Um, but this time using the Latin alphabet in a peculiar way. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one to think about. Uh, just, just this idea. And, um, the, the, the idea of weird writing seems to be coming up a couple places. The next, the, the first one that I brought, I only brought a couple of the, of examples in. And one of them is Bliss Symbolics, which, is um, notable in that it's only written. And like the characteristic Universalis, it's based on a misunderstanding of how Chinese characters work. <laughs> I, 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 I say it that way because it's true. Because it's um, Charles Bliss, um, who I believe his... what Bliss was a, a name he changed his... Um, he changed his name to Charles Bliss for reasons. He was born as Carl uh, Kaziel Blitz. And uh, basically, he was one of the many people who had the idea of a universal language. Um, and he had spent some time in China, and he sort of got a, an idea of Chinese that is a little bit abstracted and... Not quite right. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, you know, the, the standard sort of myth that, uh, that Chinese is pictographic and such. Um, and he based a language on that. And the, the, really the interesting thing for, to me about Bliss Symbolics is this, the odd history it went because basically it got picked up by, um, people who were teaching children with, uh, various learning disabilities that uh, caused them 
difficulty with communicating. And what, and, uh, at first, Charles Bliss was happy to see this, this, uh, use, but he got mad because they were not teaching his symbols as a language. They were te- using them and modifying them to teach these children how to speak whatever the, the language that was relevant to them. English, uh, in Israel, they, they used it to teach Hebrew, stuff like that. And he actually sued people for that. Wow. So this, the, but back to what the weird idea is. The, 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 the biggest thing is that it can't be spoken, right? I believe that's true. Yeah. So it's like only written and I don't know. It's a little bit bizarre to think. I, I'm, I mean, you can see where people would get the idea for that to have a language that's only written for for international communication but at the same time it's just a little bit um unusual and uh on the the other one that i brought in was uh sorosol yes good old sorosol and let me see if i can get I neglected to get the Wikipedia article up, so I'm just going to search it right now. Uh, but Sorosol was, uh, created by Francois Sundre, uh, in, uh, 1827, starting then, and I guess he continued the project. But, uh, if, if people are familiar with this, uh, it's based on the uh notes the eight notes of a i guess a major scale in uh western musical tradition uh so and you know the names that we apply to those do re mi fa so la ti do um uh although it's do re mi fa so la si i guess it's he's used there's there's different names i learned la ti anyway so Here's the modalities you can use for sorosol. You can actually say the, the, the syllables. You can sing it or you can write it in colors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but That's interesting. Basically each one of these eight, uh, or seven really notes, since do is just repeats, um, each one of the seven notes is assigned a color of the rainbow. And, uh, so you have red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet to go with your do, re, me, fa, fa, so, la, si. Yep. Uh, and it's, I think it's another sort of organizing the universe sort of thing a little bit, is it? Or? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's another taxonomic language. Yeah. The, because each one of them has sort of a, a, um, a basic meaning that it contributes. Uh, reducing the universe to seven concepts. That's Holy cow! Well, according to this, dodo lami means Calvinism. <laughs> dodo la. <laughs> That's interesting. Yes, yes, it is. Um, yeah, it's another one of these languages that care, you know, tries to use a very small bit of things and cram all of it. And I mean, especially if you, if you, all you have is seven syllables. Um, and again, you have the same problem with real character. A lot of arbitrariness. So that things that are nominally quite similar um, or n- that might be different enough that you care about their distinctions, the words sound nearly identical. Mm-hmm. 
Now, um, this is not really an exhaustive list, uh, but I think it's really sort of interesting to, to see these, these oddball ideas. And well, one trick can... though that I should mention that he pulls in Soul Rose Soul is oh. a shifting of accents. Uh huh. Where the accent is is interesting and also vowel lengths. Mm hmm. Um, so all sorts of fun things can happen there. Um, so that plurals, for example, are indicated by lengthening the final vowel of the mm. word. Okay. Exactly right that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so that can, uh, so there's, there's some super segmentals, I guess that, I guess that carries into all the different modalities too. So somehow, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how it carries into color. Um, yeah, I guess you can make that color smudge a little wider. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, that was really surprisingly few that we had on the mind. I don't know. Does anyone like have another one of these? Cause I, I couldn't really think off the top of my head others, but I guess we could just sort of talk about like what can we really learn looking at these different uh different weird ideas and well, how could we apply well i think the first one is that oligosynthesis is hard mm-hmm. so oligosynthesis is when you take a small number of particles of meaning and from those you generate an entire language mm-hmm. and we have i mean we have not included but probably could um, in this list, Tokipona. We haven't included it because it does not offer itself as a Oxlang. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's true. I guess, um, Tokipona is, is sort of like, uh, we're creating our own culture sort of thing. Right. But taking a small number of particles and smashing them together ultimately results in first, a lot of words that sound nearly identical. Um, mm-hmm. when in fact you might want similar things to sound more different so that you can talk about them intelligibly. Yeah. Um, and second, you end up sort of throwing your hands up. It often seems in these languages and picking arbitrary distinctions to, to start with. Um, one thing I did when I learned about the language of space is to amuse myself. I made a list of like 25 words mm-hmm. um, and I gave people a page with the symbols of Aoi and a few examples of how words might be formed. And I asked them to come up with their own Aoi versions of common English words. Nobody came up with the same thing. Right. <laughs> that's, 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 that's another important thing with all these ones that have the, 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 the ugly synthetic ones and the, like the real character, which is a little bit more complex, but still has this classification system. You can't really sort of impose that sort of rigid structure because people would end up having to memorize your classification system. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And the, the point is, is it sounds like, yes, if I just have, you know, 50 particle meanings and just cram them all together, this will be very simple. It's yeah. not. I mean, it might be simple for <laughs> you. I mean, it might be simple for the person inventing it. The, the inventions might make perfect sense. Um. I wonder what the word for pizza is in the language of space. <laughs> um, but it might not make much sense to anyone else. And this another thing. I started reading um, 
uh, Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things uh, okay. recently. And uh, the the point that's being made, I have, I've only gotten through like the introduction and such, but the point that they make there, and I think this is a good point, is it seems like humans don't actually naturally classify them in the things in the in the way that we uh classically think of classification we don't really make categories based on properties and fix things into categories we have like prototypes of a particular thing in our mind and compare things to the prototypes right yeah. so my my favorite example of this if you sit people down and ask them to start naming animals they're typically going to group things by function, mm-hmm. right? You're going to name pet animals, and then you're going to name farm animals, mm-hmm. and then you're going to name zoo animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so very often we classify things according to their relationship to us rather than some larger concept of taxonomy, which is scientifically useful, um, especially if you can back it up with genetics. Um, but in terms of actual human day-to-day human language, um, that's not how we think about things. No, and and that's an important thing to realize, and it's probably one one reason why it it makes sense that in uh, in natural languages, usually very closely related concepts have different sounding words. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, because they're they're different enough that you care. Yeah, it's if you if you want to make sure that you're making the distinction then you want to because you would talk about the same these things in the same context right and that's also another part of the of of redundancy is you know you have to have enough enough new information in a new word that people can pick up what it is right and all um, your all your pronouns should not rhyme <laughs> yeah i'm talking to you esperanto mm mm-hmm. I think uh, another important thing with um with these um sort of odd ideas of uh you know written only languages and soul race soul which is just kind of bizarre uh is I don't know really if you're making something that's a human language how practical it is to go beyond uh spoken and signed languages um I guess you could you could play with it, but like, particularly for an oxlang, those are the natural ways that humans use language is to either have spoken language or, um, sign language. And la- sign languages usually arise in environments where, uh, somehow speech is not possible. Yeah, from the oxlang perspective, something that's only written does seem very odd, especially in a, a world of modern communications. Something like real character or characteristica universalis made a little more sense as writing only systems, um, say characteristica universalis, not real character that could be spoken. If most of international communication, especially at high philosophical, government, scientific levels, are all taking place primarily by writing, mm-hmm. it's not obviously insane to focus on a writing system. But in the modern world, that seems a lot less obviously a good idea. Yeah. And obviously like Sorosol is is different in that you can speak it i understand but yes yeah but at the same time you know if you can speak it i don't know how many people are really would 
if it were to like catch on, which it's not likely to, I don't know how many people would like do the singing or the colors uh, outside of like art projects. Right. Right. It's, it's sort of a, a um, it's sort of a trick. And obviously the, the other uh, one in our own category uh, don't revive proto languages for a uh, a uh, a an oxline. Mm-hmm. I I just don't think it's it's plausible. I think why not? Why not? Why well, not? In princi- <laughs> what's wrong with it in principle? I mean, obviously, uh, it would be nice to pick one that's not fiendishly difficult to learn. That's true. Or pronounce. Yeah. Um, I guess it would depend. It's possible that there may be a proto language out there that is similar enough to its daughter languages that we could we could do it but like say if someone wanted to revive like old chinese with the original pronunciation most speakers of chinese languages would not be capable of would not be would not easily learn that because it has very complex consonant clusters it had no tones at that time, mm-hmm. uh, it would it would just be fiendishly difficult for them. It's, it's it would it's not quite the same as reconstructed PIE would be for us, which is a pain. Yeah. Uh, but I think probably in a lot of cases, it's going to be the case that the daughter languages, at least if you're going to go like big into like big reconstructed languages that are thousands of the years ago that it's likely that it's changed enough that it will be difficult for modern speakers to learn that reconstructed language. Sure. But again, you're assuming that the goal is for the proto language to be easily learned specifically by a small cluster of people. If you're aiming at an Oxlang, you want it to be widely available. So Mm -hmm. then everyone's disadvantaged. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I And that's a little more friendly. Yeah. I guess that, that that makes some sense. Oh, see, this is sad. So, um, the Soul Resol still has fans, and so there's an entire website um, devoted to it. Yeah. Um, and we learned that we missed by a full ten days recording Soul Resol Day, which is oh, August fifteenth. That's 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 wonderful. Yes. And it, it, that that will be weeks in in the past by the time. Yes. But next year, people can celebrate it. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, what, and anyway, so what do you guys think are, we're not really Oxlangers here. No. (laughs) We don't, we don't really believe in the, uh, I, I don't think any of us on this show really believes in the, the sort of Oxlang philosophy insofar as we think it's impractical no i don't what you're right i don't think it's impractical oh no i'm not against i'm not against the idea of a good ox lane okay so william you are the more ox langy of us then what would you actually recommend for a good ox lane then Good according to what standard? If you want to actually communicate with people on the planet mm-hmm. whose language you don't speak, learn Esperanto because your chances of success are far higher there than in any other one. Right. But I mean, 
for creating one. For creating one? Yeah. I mean, learn a little typology, pick things that are very common, and go. Right. Um, I think the thing that a lot of people miss in creating conlangs of any sort, and that certainly is a great um, disaster in many oxlangs, um, is a failure to attend to, carefully attend to the semantics of your words, um, and a failure to realize that a lot of what you express is determined by the words, not some abstract conception of grammar. And we've ranted about this before, right? Your dictionary is your language mm -hmm. um, to a very high degree. And this can be a sneaky way to have all sorts of complexity that will um, terrorize your learners. Yeah. Um, I would think a couple things. But aim for something that looks like an actual natural human language that has a reasonable consonant and vowel inventory, that has reasonable syllable shapes and sizes, yeah. um, that um, has a grammar that's not wild, that has um, a flexibility in word creation, but not this super crazy oligosynthetic that you can somehow imagine. Mm. Yeah. Um, um, I, I think some... There are some typological things that you might want to include for ease of learning, like um, uh, stick with not too small, but fairly small uh, phoneme inventory and fairly simple syllables. Yep. And also probably want to, you probably want to make it isolating just so, you know, you don't, I mean... Uh, if you do have, um, prefixes, suffixes, you know, uh, uh, grammatical inflections, make them perfectly regular. But right. I don't think you really need them. And, and, uh, you know, it's possible that making it more isolating could reduce the memorization load. Maybe, maybe. I'm not, I don't object to the idea of more complicated morphology in a, an oxlang, but it just has to be regular, right? Right, yeah. The point of an oxlang is for it to be easier to learn than a native language or a natural language, so you should not have exceptions. <laughs> um, no, no, no irregularities. Basically. No irregularity. A, a lot of things that we advocate on the show, you don't want for an oxlang, because we usually want naturalistic right. conlangs. But for right. oxlangs, you wouldn't want. Um, and, uh, yeah. And, uh, keep an eye on your words. <laughs> um, and I think possibly one thing about it is that making it like a community build would be good. I think that's one strength of Esperanto is it sort of belongs to a community. Right. But I think it would be a, Get it mostly done and then give it to the community. Otherwise, you'll get other conlangers involved and nothing will ever be decided. <laughs> yeah. No, it's true. Conlangers always want to tinker and there'll be endless arguments. I mean, in the world of Oxlangs, the perfect is definitely the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. There will always be some decision that is made that somebody somewhere can say is a terrible idea, probably with reasonable justification. But sometimes you just have to make a decision that works um, and move forward. All right. Yeah, that, that, I mean, it, there's some of these discussions presume that language is perfectible and that can, can lead to all sorts of weirdness. People who believe that tend to be the same sorts of people who get behind Oxlang. So <laughs> not well, always, I but mean, you, can, you can get funny ideas about how language is supposed to work and what it is. Right. Right. But 
All right. I think that is about as much discussion as we can. We, I, we, we can, we can get out of this, but, uh, uh, this, I guess this will be a little bit of a shorter episode, but, uh, I hope people enjoyed it. Uh, our next episode is, what is it again? We were just talking about this before recording. What happened to my nominative? Right. What happened to my nominative? Where did my nominative go? Uh, so, uh, it's, uh, a little bit of case fun that we're yes. going to talk about yes. and how you can mix up your case system in interesting ways. So, look forward to that and uh, I'll see you, William and Mike, to everyone listening. Happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.